probably the biggest mistakes people make, even especially in that kind of 20s to 30s season of life, is you'll spend years kind of looking for the thing that you should be focusing on and kind of bouncing around. Maybe we'll do this. I don't know. That's not for me. But like in reality, you could just take a weekend like and go like connect with somebody who's you're going to work with, uh, you know, or even just bring somebody as like a sparring partner for the conversation and, and don't leave until you figured it out, like figure out what you're going to do and then go do it. But don't, don't wake up every day with this. I'm just making progress, but I don't know what, what towards stop until you know what towards and then go towards it. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. All right, everyone, on today's episode, we are joined by Levi Ben-Kurt. You've done some pretty seemingly crazy deals and operated some really cool businesses. And so I'm excited to spend the next, you know, 45, 50 minutes just really diving into some of those deals, some of their backgrounds and how you kind of got started in this game. Maybe some advice that we can pull away for some younger listeners here. Probably the best way to frame this conversation is probably almost taking it back 20 or so years to the age of a lot of our listeners. Now there's a story that I found as I was researching your background where essentially you were 22 years old and took out what, what I perceive as an $880,000 negative amortizing loan, which essentially means you can default, defer the interest payments onto the principal, if I'm correct. Uh, right. My understanding is, I don't know if they do that as much now after the- They do, they uh, do not and they should not. Those were not, those were not <laughs> smart financial instruments and I, I would never touch one today, but- I would, I would love to maybe just kick off this podcast, just diving straight into that deal and hearing that yeah. story because just from reading that Twitter thread alone, I was like, holy shit, this is going to be a crazy story. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I, my wife and I got married real young, uh, 18, had our son a year later, uh, just kind of dove right in. Neither of us went to college and figured we needed to figure out how to make some money. And so uh, we started a, a coffee shop, like within a couple of months after getting married, we found an old bookstore, rented it. And I went and did the whole remodel and started a coffee shop. But while we were doing that, I mean, that was a, a you know, a, a mediocre business that earned a little bit of income. We figured we should start doing something to make a little bit more money. And so we started flipping houses and we had done at the point where we bought that big one that you're talking about there, we had done, I don't know, five or six hundred to $150,000 buy it, go in, do all the work ourselves right from the get go. My wife would do all the, the choosing designs and stuff. And I would swing a hammer and we'd get up, get it painted up and make it work and sell it sometimes in six weeks and literally had maybe one or two subs that come put an air conditioner in or something, but you know, almost all the work was done by us. Um, and then we found this one that um, it was at the time, the most expensive house that had ever sold in the city. Um, $880,000, but it had, you know, it was a big house, 5,000 square foot house on five acres, but it was zoned for one acre parcels. And so I went in, literally just, you know, walked into the planning department and said, if I want to split this up, what's the process? They gave me the name of a, a you know, an engineer that could help me with, you know, putting a plat map together. And I mean, it did the whole thing, like just completely by myself, you know, got a little bit of help. Um, but bought it with, I mean, I can't remember exactly how much I, I think we gathered together. It was like $20,000 down or something. It was like a, you know, 2% down mortgage plus closing, closing costs and then negatively amortized more, you know, monthly payments. So 
the payment wasn't that high. We could still handle it. But I mean, this was back in the time when you did stated income loans. And so what year you know, was this? Was, this was 2003, 2002 or 2003. And so, you know, Countrywide would literally say, you, you know, here's your, you fill out your income, put whatever you think you're going to make next year. It was like completely, I mean, they, they weren't, they weren't checking anything and they were telling, they were coaching you and telling you like, here's how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to put it in there. And so I was like, Hey, I just got my real estate license. I should probably have a pretty good year. And they're like, yeah, yeah, put that. That's good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's fine. We're not that's asking. Incredible. And so we bought this thing. I mean, to, you know, to their credit, they made a good, a, a good gamble on us. We made the mortgage payments all the way through it, bought this thing, split it up, sold the lots for, I think we sold the lots for like eight seventy. And then sold the house itself for eight eighty. So we literally doubled mo- the money in. I think we owned it for fifteen months altogether because it took that long to go through the process. And and, and the process cost you know six or seven thousand dollars. Like it wasn't like it was this incredibly expensive. Um, <laughs> it's fantastic. But if you look at so this was in West Sacramento, just across the river from Sacramento, California. If you go pull up this address. Um, it, it's literally called Ben Curtis Estates is the name of the like plat map that's on there. I'm like, you know, in, in like a hundred years, that'll still be there. I love it. <laughs> that's awesome. Was, yeah. was real estate always kind of the path you wanted to go down or it sounds like you didn't go to school. Was that on purpose? Cause you knew you wanted to go the real estate route or you just kind of fell into, Hey, I should probably be doing something. Let's uh, do the yeah, coffee shop and I, you just kind of started flipping houses. <laughs> it certainly wasn't intentional. Neither my wife or I grew up in families that had, been to college and so it wasn't like a, a you know push that we should go that direction um we've we both regret that it's not my advice like if i sit down with somebody who asks me like hey should i just skip college i'm like yeah i mean that's a good time of your life um my oldest son is now in his third year at ut austin and i'm a, I'm a bit jealous of what you know that kind of fun that he gets to have that's that's relatively carefree i mean obviously there's a lot of uh pressure and a lot of things that he needs to do and he works a job and pays for part of his way to go through there but you know it's something that I feel like we just kind of jumped over that stage that could have been this really fun stage in life and we just kind of got you know got going with having kids and starting businesses and everything yeah I feel like uh definitely the anecdote that we've kind of taken away from a lot of the podcasts that we've done so far is like what we'll find is a lot of people will go to college and then never use it but if you're looking at it from like a fun side or even like an insurance side of like, hey, listen, yeah. everything goes wrong and I still have this piece of paper, it's kind of like a little bit of a safer way to kind of look at it. Um, yeah. And, one, and the connections, I-, I feel like, I mean, there's lifelong friends that you make. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and it's not that I, I feel like I've always been somebody that's committed to continue learning. I mean, I, I put me up against anybody with a master's degree and I pretty much guarantee you I've read more and continue to do so than almost anybody that I know. And that's just kind of built in is that I just love learning. So I I feel very much that I've caught up. You know, at first I was way behind. I didn't understand kind of how the world worked and kind of filled in the gaps with ambition. But over time, certainly have caught up and, and understand, you know, macroeconomics and financial models. And I've done courses at MIT and like just continuously like that this hunger for learning and that's kind of made up for it but but you still miss out on other aspects of what are fun in that kind of phase of life 
And totally. I mean, I think the, the one thing to say too, is like very little of learning from like the age of zero to 22 is like specific knowledge, right? It's like you learn about biology when you're 16 and then you learn about history yeah. when you're 13, right? Like, like you kind of go through these different phases to be like a well-rounded individual. But when it comes yeah. time to say like, Hey, I'm either a marketing professional, I'm in real estate, I'm in, you know, whatever, whatever industry you're in. And now I no longer am obligated to learn because I'm not in school, but I'm going to choose to learn anyway. And I'm going to learn about this specific knowledge. That's when you can go and really make like substantial leaps over the competition. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The other approach that I kind of want to chat about here too, and then we're kind of maybe going to shift the conversation around a little bit as well is you shared recently, it might have not been recently, a couple of months back of a lot of the different deals that you've done, right? And so just from like kind of studying yeah. this chart, I think I think a lot of people on Twitter at the time were kind of sharing like their wins and L's and you were very open about it. You, you basically like two things that stuck out to me was that you had two deals that you did, one in 2000, one in 2007 that had like the most absurd IRRs I've ever seen. It was like 1100% IRR, 1700% IRR. And these are just like absolutely massive returns. Um, right. I, I guess maybe we start there and then I want to ask you about the other five deals that kind of happened more towards 2009 where it was yep. actually a hundred percent lost, but let's start off with maybe yep. these deals and kind of understand a little bit more how those came to be and, and where that alpha came from. I mean, just like that's, those are unheard of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the beauty of leverage in real estate is the amount that you're putting in compared to, you know, you get a hundred percent of the upswing. And so, if you buy well, add value with sweat equity or what, or you know, a number of different ways, you can you can get an enormous upswing that is on 100 percent of the value, and you might have only put five, 10, 15 percent in. And so, I mean, I've just always been this extremely entrepreneurial. Like, uh, you know, we have a, a saying at Harvard Capital: "Is shake all the trees." And I feel like that's something that I've kind of throughout my whole life have been like, you know, I can find the diamond in the rough because i'm willing to dig further and go you know farther than anybody else because there are there are always mispriced opportunities out there in any market at any time in history there's always mispriced opportunities there's something that somebody is selling for you know the three d's divorce deaths death or taxes or divorce divorce debt or death that's the three and so, you know, sometimes your debt is, is too bad and you've got to sell. Sometimes somebody dies or sometimes they get divorced and you end up just kind of in this, like, I've got to sell. I don't have any choice. And there are you know, tons of those opportunities. And so all those projects, I don't even remember the specific ones early on, but, I, you know, I had some just incredible home runs. I think one of those might have been the one we just talked about because, you know, the, the initial capital I invested was so small, but then the upswing was so large and, and happened in only a you know 15 month period. So then it shows up as a, as a astronomical IRR. Um, but I, you know, so we kind of got uh, the start of the story there, started flipping houses, did this one that I did land and then actually went from there and launched a whole company that did uh over and over and over, dozens of land deals, really large land deals. So we would buy farmland, get it rezoned, get it entitled and ready to build for a home builder and then sell it to, I sold to KB Homes and Lennar and DR Hart and all the big builders that were really active in California at the time and still, still are, many of them. Um, I would sell them kind of ready to build communities that I hadn't touched the dirt on. I didn't do anything except for process the plat map that made it buildable for them. Um, and so I did that for a number of years. And then the 2008 crash happened. I owned at the time 400 lots across 
a number of properties <clears throat> that I had done that process on, bought them, entitled them, you know, rezoned, entitled. Uh, sometimes had even done curb gutter and sidewalk, like done all the underground utilities and got them ready to build. And on a few of the sites, we'd even built a few houses. But then, I mean, the the you know, 2008 crash happened. I mean, it was just you know, scorched earth. Banks who were eager to to loan, throwing money at us a, a few months earlier, just completely stopped and said, you know, we're not we're not lending on these whatsoever. And so we had to go, I had to go through this process to basically negotiate with the lien holder, the first lien holder on those, all those properties. And in many cases, just, you know, give the property back to the bank because there was no possibility of, you know, making debt payments, you know, all, all of the equity in partners that I had in those deals just wanted to wash their hands of it. They were like, Hey, these are done. Like this is not getting built in the next five to seven years. Um, you know, in hindsight, I think, that, you know, even though the great financial crisis was long and deep, I think many of the investors, kind of, the sentiment was probably even a little too harsh compared to the reality, um, even though the reality was really bad. It, you know, people thought there was just, this was kind of the new norm. It was never going to come back. And in reality, you know, five years later, it did start to, start to come back. Brutal. <laughs> Did you kind of strategically do the transition from, you know, I feel like a lot of people start with the flipping homes and then, you know, maybe single family rentals, but going from that to land to industrial, kind of from a high level perspective, was it all just like, hey, I'm seeing opportunities, I'm trying everything and, and just kind of going with with what works? Or did you try to really, you know, take a step back and say, you know, there's, there's levers I can pull on here, you know, this is what the kind yeah. of risk looks like or... How did how did that work from kind of a mindset um, standpoint? That's a good question. I mean, honestly, later in life, I've learned to do that better to step back and look at the macroeconomic trends and try to figure out something that had strong tailwinds that wasn't as uh, you know picked over. I, the reason why I don't do multifamily anymore, even though for years I did, was that everybody's doing multifamily. Everybody's looking at, I should buy a, you know, 1980s vintage apartment building and fix it up and raise rents. And, you know, it's the playbook. I wanted to find something where the playbook wasn't obvious and there weren't six or seven other buyers, or in some cases, 25 other buyers out trying to outbid me and kind of setting the economics based on fear of missing out. I, I, I don't want those kind of economics at all. What I want is a and it started building, you know, I wish I'd started doing this sooner in life. What I started building is this massive portfolios of cash flowing properties that are going to continue to, you know, over the long run, even though they might drop a little bit at, at some point, will increase in value. Rents will be able to increase. They're high demand. And these are just great properties to own. I want to just, you know, every day, brick by brick, keep adding to that portfolio over time. I, and industrial is, I've found, the absolute perfect business to do that. We're able to find, you know, dumb buyers because of death, divorce, taxes or debt. For, for some reason, you know, many times, often they're just dumb. They just don't know why, you know, the property that they're selling is, is worth more. Um, we're able to go in and buy at a low price. We're able to find mispriced assets and we're able to, to transition them into high cash flow earning assets by, you know, Sometimes it's kicking out a tenant, bringing a new one in, subdividing a property and making it into three or four tenant industrial building. You know, there's just lots of options for us. 
At, at what point did you shift over into this buy and hold model versus flip? Was it after essentially 2008, 2009? A, a long ways after. So uh, okay. I'll kind of condense a decade into a couple of minutes here. After 2008, um, it was rough to say the least. I mean, some personal on the personal side as well. So basically 2008 happened. I had 23 employees, 25 employees, somewhere around there going into 2008, had to lay everybody off, like kind of systematically just, you know, every couple of weeks we had to do another layoff for a while there at the end of 2008. Got to the end, uh, absolute best friend, partner that I'd worked with for a number of years. I just couldn't pay his salary and had to tell him like, hey man, you gotta go find another job. Um, he had a liver condition that he'd lived with for years. The the basically the stress of the situation contributed to that flaring up, and he died three days after I'd laid him off. And I remember just feeling like this was you know uh, this was my fault. Like but I, you know I'd failed everybody. This friend of mine now had you know two kids with no dad and terrible. And then a couple that was all a couple of weeks after that. My brother who'd been struggling with addiction for years committed suicide and it was just this like it felt like the whole world was imploding and and you know meanwhile trying to sort this all out with investors saying like hey remember this great deal that we had that we were real optimistic about like these fundamentals have shifted in the market and they just no longer exist in the same way um i mean i was you know I think I was 27 when this all happened. I just did not know what I was doing. My wife and I, it was I'm so thankful for her. She was like, let's go do something different for a little while, like altruistic. Let's go like, you know, save the world. So we literally moved to Ethiopia to go start an orphanage a after everything was all cleaned up and, you know, uh, like worked through the whole process and went through the, you know, hand working with banks and everything. And it was when we were deciding what to do next, I was pushing hard to start a business. And my wife was like, you know what, well, let's do go do something better for a little while. Um, did you, we, did you end up with, were, were, you, were you totally broke at that point? Did you kind of have some money aside? Or? No, totally broke. Yeah. I mean, I, it was everything I did have, I felt like was owed to the investors. And so yeah. we, we, you know, yeah, <laughs> completely. And so we literally moved to Ethiopia with like hardly any money. Um, started an orphanage over there. It's still going today. There's a couple hundred kids that we've been able to like rescue and, and, raise up and several of them have like graduated college now it's really cool to see um but then i just loved living there like it was this fascinating it felt like moving to like america 100 years ago like laws were still getting set like markets didn't exist yet super inefficiencies in markets and so and while we were there i started several businesses i raised more than 120 million dollars for those businesses and a co-founder that did it with me um the biggest business was a a real estate development company that would build apartment buildings. So basically wherever there was a U.S. embassy, we would build an apartment building next door. And so a uh, big building that was finished in Ethiopia, then other ones that I actually sold the business to, to my partner. He pulled in a private equity fund and bought me out. Um, but it, when I sold it, it had a $1.1 billion pipeline of projects in Kenya, Nigeria, uh, Tanzania, Ethiopia, That's all over incredible. the place. What yeah. is, okay, so what is that? What does that path look like, though, from going to start an orphanage <laughs> to then having a billion and a half pipeline in, in real estate development? Like, like, how did you go um, from, I don't, I don't know. I just the, seeing needs. I mean, so I started another business while I was there as well that was uh, the, kind the of under one, the right? same structure. It was really, yes, yeah, so it was beef. So really, it was this, you know, 
seeing a need in the market. And in one case, it was embassy families that needed housing and the U.S. government was paying for them and realizing like, hey, I could figure out how to build this. And so, I mean, that first apartment building that we built was worth $170 million. Uh, you know, it was over 130 apartments that would lease to the U.S. government at, um, I think it was like $7,000 a month was the rent that we could charge them for a two-bedroom apartment. And, you know, taxpayer Ethiopia. funded, it's incredible. Yeah, in Ethiopia. No way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's completely occupied. The first building's occupied, and it's fantastic. But then the beef build business was just seeing a need of, hey, there's local farmers that have, Ethiopia has 55 million head of cattle, and yet not a, a international market. And so if you, you know, you could, they could kill a, a bull and sell beef into the local market for pennies on the dollar, and we were saying, like, I went in and said, hey, look, the Middle East is right there. They don't eat pork. And so they eat a lot more beef per capita than most other parts of the world do. And they're importing from Brazil is where most of their meat comes from. Like, this could be an opportunity to give these local people a, a, a link to the, you know, these foreign markets and also make some money in the middle. And so built, I mean, gosh, raised, I think that business was $45 million or something that we raised from a bunch of different private equity funds and individual investors and built that up. At one point it was exporting, it was like two and a half million dollars of beef a month. And yeah, it was pretty cool. Levi, I've got a question that I feel like, I don't know if you're gonna have an answer for, but I figured it's worth at least asking anyway. It's like most of the entrepreneurial content that I feel like is out there is super helpful when like, you know nothing and you're just getting to the game and like, you can kind of just hear these stories and it's mostly honestly serves for a point of inspiration, right? And I hear your story where it's like, you were 20, like subdividing out land, like 22, like taking these crazy financial instruments on. And then like, now you go over here and, and you're literally partnering up with US embassies and starting this meat exporting business. And like, you've got this crazy path, right? And right. in my mind, I think one of the things that people who want to go and start a business start to realize is like, there's no piece of content, whether it's YouTube, podcast, Twitter, whatever, that's going to show you how to go and, and do kind of the stuff that you're doing, right? Like you can't necessarily right. just go and say like, hey, like you go over here, you find these opportunities. And like, there's no course on starting Ethiopian beef export yeah. business. No, right. it doesn't like, exist. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. 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 Um, no, the, the, point, <laughs> the, yeah. the point being is that it is very clear that you have a skill for like essentially finding opportunity where other people aren't necessarily looking. And this is why yeah. I think, I don't know if you have an answer to this question or not, but if you did, I think it would be really interesting to hear your perspective is like, is there a way that you think that you maybe think about things a little bit differently when approaching businesses <laughs> that you don't think a lot of other people think about? Because yeah. I think like most people who want to go and, and re listen to all of this content to go and figure out what to do, like in some ways, I, I think it reminds me of the Elon Musk quote of like, you know, what would you say to inspire young entrepreneurs and Elon Musk is like, yeah, if you need inspiration to get started, like don't start, like this shit is tough, right? Right, um, right, right. So I'm, I'm just, I'm curious if there's like either frameworks yeah. or mindsets or yeah, know, anything sure. that you might have. Yeah, I, honestly, I think it's a couple of things. First is just this like keen eye towards identifying opportunity and, and being willing to just research the hell out of it just keep going just keep diving deeper like you know and and like before the beef i looked at doing a chicken farm and an egg farm a, a pineapple a, like a whole bunch of different things and just trying to find opportunity and it was like wait and then this one hits and three months worth of just you know dogged deep dive 
literally going and like talking to every government official and flying to Dubai, talking to them about what, you know, the markets that exist there. And like, just this like crazy, you know, I'm sure my wife was like, what is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> it's like, like, does this work? And just testing and testing and testing a hypothesis and being willing at any point to be like, okay, it doesn't work. Like, this one doesn't work. Let's move on to the next one. And then from there, I think that I, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think there's something a little bit broken in me that other people have this kind of fear of like, Hey, you know, uh, that just sounds too complicated. I don't want to get into it where to me, it's like, uh, no, that's really interesting. Like there could be something here. And also this just disregard for customs. I feel like a lot of people think that the way that it's done is done that way for a reason. When in reality, often the way that things are done are done that way because 50 years ago, somebody decided to do that and everybody else are that has kind of followed that custom. It just accepted that as reality. This is the way we're supposed to do things. So, you know, train me and I'll just do it how I'm supposed to do it. And that's right. Where I, I just look at things and it's like, okay, that's a custom, but it's not a law. Or even if it's a law, like, why is this the law? And maybe we should go get the law changed or, you know, like, so that's, when we were yeah. start, starting that beef business, we realized pretty quickly. So first of all, I'm, I'm, I take pride in the fact that I'm the dumbest guy in the room. I mean, I'm, thrilled to identify these opportunities, but then real quickly, I know I need to find an expert. And so right from the get-go with that beef business, hired a couple of guys that just knew their stuff. Uh, one of them was Dutch and one was South African. And these guys, I mean, were just like absolute experts, badasses. Had done how how did you convince them though, like to, I don't know. I feel like if you just get a phone call from a guy <laughs> that's never been in the, the beef business and it's like, hey, uh, come help me do this. I don't one, know what, like, is it just one guy? Took, it took me and... six months to get one guy. Okay. Multiple offers had to convince him to leave. Uh, he was running a business in Ethiopia that was a German owned flower farm that had 2,300 employees. And he was the general manager. I mean, he'd worked his way up in this company. Um, and so it was tough to convince him, but I was like, look, what we're doing is so much better and so much more exciting. <laughs> You know, like, oh, let's do this together. <laughs> um, I think, I think yeah, so part I, of what you're saying, just... the first thing was getting the experts in and then letting, like, literally letting them run the company, letting them, turning them loose is a huge part of, of getting there. But one of the things that we realized really quickly is we need a lot of land. And so the first thing you, we did is try to go buy it and found that, you know, all the sellers were completely unreasonable. But Ethiopia, the way it works is that, like no one actually owns land. You just lease it from the government. And so I realized like, Hey, we could actually go to the government and get them to like grant us some land. And so I found this parcel that was, um, it was 1100 hectares, which a hectare is, I can't remember the exact term, but it, it was like 3,500 acres um, of land. I found this parcel that the government owned and they were using it as a like research facility it was not that far from the city. It was on a main road, like it's perfect. And so I went, uh, first I went to like the local government and they're like, yeah, nobody knows. Like, you know, that's government owned, the federal government owns it. And so then I went and started talking to federal government people and no one could tell me anything. And so I literally found out where the prime minister lived. And it, it's like this compound where his office and the like prisoner, you know, prime minister's palace are on the same land. I went and like drove up, parked in the parking lot, 
walked into the like guard shack and was like, I've got to, you know, I prepared this whole letter. I was like, I got this letter for the prime minister. Show up with like a box of donuts and some pizza. Just yeah. be like, hey guys. <laughs> and they were like, you can't be here. Like, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to sit down. Like, I want to give this to him. And they were like, yeah, you can't like, you know, escorted me out of there. I'm like, well, can you give this to him? And they're like, sure. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I went back. I mean, I think it was 16 days in a row, wrote a different letter every time, just kept going, going, going. And then one day, went in there, and every time I would just go sit there until they would like escort me out of there. And then one day they were like, I mean, he's going to meet with you. Like, are you ready? <laughs> And I don't think it was right then. I scheduled it for a couple days later, but I literally got to meet with the prime minister. It was like a six minute long meeting. He was like, Hey, I'm impressed. I've been seeing these. It's showing up on my desk every day. Is this you? You know, I was like, Yep, that's me. And he was like, All right, uh, we'll, we'll make it happen. Like, gave me the name of some fixer, like, guy in the government office. And two months later, we had the deed 100 year lease on this land. All of it was ours. We could go build a business on it. It was fantastic. <laughs> See, when I when I hear stories like this, this is exactly kind of what I was talking about on like the intangible element of like someone's gonna hear that and they're gonna say, "Great!" Like, how does this like almost like apply to me, right? And I think I think what you kind of summarized earlier was like, it, like it's one of those things that you just kind of have to have it in you to some degree. And I think that's actually yep. one of the things that we kind of talked about like at the very beginning of this conversation is around college and like college does not set up people for that at all. Like college essentially goes and says like, oh, you spent three months researching whether or not you should like grow and export like chicken or beef. Like, did you produce anything in those six months? Right? No, like, okay, like you're not yeah. being productive, right? And I think the same thing too with this idea that like rules are the way they are. And like, I think what's smart yeah. about the way you approach is like, well, why? Like, what if they were just slightly different, right? And kind of like questioning that. Like, I think even like Gio and I this week were, uh, getting a little like little little upset because some banks were turning us down for loans because we don't live right. in that state and we we're like dude like i'm not even in the country right now it's like we were like we've been jumping around all over the place like why is why right. is that a rule um right. but i do i do definitely think that like the willingness to say like i guess i guess it's almost just say like not really taking no or like the idea that something's not possible like not really giving that much weight at all and just saying well like it probably is possible we just need to think about a different way to approach it mm-hmm. So it's also in terms of like being comfortable to probably like, if I had to guess, you've probably tried like a thousand different, you know, business ideas, I would assume to some extent of like, Hey, does this work? Okay. And the, you know, an right. initial analysis, you know, and then, then you kind of filter it down you look at all these other ideas. Um, yeah. Yeah. Actually it's funny before the first, the very first business I started while in Ethiopia, because we were still needed to run the nonprofit organization over there we lived there for six years and then moved back to the U.S. And for five years after we lived in America, still ran the business. We moved back here in like 2015 to Austin. Um, but the, the very first business that I did there was a, a medical diagnostic center that we literally bought into an existing business and kind of co-ran it with a local guy that ended up finding out he was stealing money and like cooking the books. And so I had to, had to exit and take a, a, a loss on that one. But it was like, wait, like, but there's, we're not walking away. Like there's actually some real opportunity here. It's just like that one thing of just kind of meeting someone and investing in it wasn't the right way to do it. Like we had to have control. So which businesses could we control? Why, why even come back to the U S at this point when you find so much, you know, kind of random, but consistent success in, um, you know, Ethiopia. Our kids, or, getting, our, kids our oldest son was going into high school and we realized needed some own country experience 
there were not good schools there. So my wife was having a homeschool, which is not the best situation. And wanted, you know, we realized like, hey, we can still travel back and forth and still run operations over there, but needed to not be there full time on the ground. So, as you kind of transition now, so you're coming back to the U.S., you start Harbor Capital, and you're you're starting to like build up their. I, I don't know if it is it technically a fund. No, no. So we're deal by deal. Deal by deal. Deal by deal. Yep. Okay, that's yep. okay. That's what I thought. So yep. one thing that I think that's been pretty cool that I've read uh, that you've kind of like shared about over the last couple of months is like when you do need money to go and raise some of these deals, you seemingly have this incredible network where like you can, I think I saw some tweets like $2 million in like 56 minutes, right? You know, you send out an email, it's like commit, commit, yep. commit. And that's pretty yep. awesome. Are there like, are there best practices for investor relations that you think maybe you do better than other people? Uh, and a reason why people feel very comfortable kind of- I wish I you? had it right here. I wrote a thread on raising money and principles for that. And I, I mean, honestly, I, I think so much of it's just being brutally honest, owning mistakes, over communicating, being really clear about what's going on, and then having a really sophisticated investment thesis. Like just do the work, do the work, do the work, dive in, figure out exactly what this market looks like and why this risk is worth it. And then we do our decks have on page three of the decks is what we don't like about this deal. And that's a very exhaustive, and I always tell my team, like, I don't want you to put in there, like, we don't like that it's blue, but we're going to paint it green. You know, <laughs> like, we don't, we don't like it because it might make fine. us too much money. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, my strengths are my weakness, you know, my weaknesses are my strengths, actually. Like, I want to be like, hey, you know, interest rates are a shit show right now. We don't know what's going on and we cannot predict the future. And here are the tolerances that we could exist, you know, we can, this, deal will still do well in. And here's here's the, the line. Once it goes over that line, we're going to start to erode into returns and it's going to hurt. Like we just want to be clear and upfront and open about all of that. And and then leave it on a like, yep. <laughs> you know, just a note of like, and, and it's bad, right? It could get bad. And, you, you know, like many of those uh, sections, I think it'll be like seven or eight, like, kind of paragraph kind of topics within the, what we don't like about the deal. And sometimes it's two or three pages long. Um, it'll be like, you know, the worst case of this scenario is a total loss of capital for investors. Like I, I want investors to know going in, like, you know, if we hit another great financial crisis and debt dries up, what happens to this deal? And so we talk through that. And I mean, and I think that is extremely valuable for investors to see just clarity of thought and, honesty about what could happen. I borrowed this line from a friend of mine that I we both invest in each other deals for years, is that my best position as a GP is standing next to our investors and looking at a deal together. I don't want to be standing in front of them, pitching them, trying to tell them, hey, this one's great. You should come in. It's perfect. You know, we've thought of everything. It's like, hey, here are the problems we've thought of. I, I hope we didn't miss anything, but if you think we did, let's talk through it because I too don't want to invest my money into something that's not going to pay off, you know? In, in terms of getting that thesis so organized, so you, you came back to the U.S. Is this kind of that moment where you decided, hey, I'm going to go after industrial? And so, so we moved back to the U.S. in 2015, um, ran that business in Ethiopia still until 2019, okay. and then sold it. My partner brought in a PE fund and bought me out. Um, and then, you know, COVID hit soon after that. 
I looked for a while at doing mobile home communities, maybe even developing them. And then, uh, you know, decided not to do that. Actually, COVID was a, a real push on that. It was like, man, if no one's going to be paying rent, I don't want to be developing projects for them. Um, and so then really took a step back again and realized like industrial is just perfect. It's this, you know, Texas is growing like crazy. Texas industrial specifically is growing like crazy. There's a lot of, of runway for us to come in and, and dominate this market. And there's not a lot of sophistication. I mean, there's a ton. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's Prologis and a bunch of other, you know, multi-billion dollar REITs and funds that, that do the 600,000 to 2 million square foot, you know, distribution of facilities. And that's not our market. We're, we're in the kind of sub, not even sub-institutional, because there certainly have some institutional competitors, but we're in this, you know, I think the smallest we would buy is $8 million now to $100 million deal range, where the buildings are, you know, up to 400,000 square feet, often divided into a bunch of tenants or sometimes one big tenant. And, you know, there's just a lot more creativity in the room for hot to grow. So how did you I get... Love- Caught up I to love speed using the then. word small and a hundred million dollars in the same <laughs> sentence. I just had to throw that out there. That's right. Yeah. How did you so you decide on industrial space? Now, did you just go? I don't know. I would I would assume you just started ringing on doorbells of everyone else that does industrial properties <laughs> and, and started chatting with them. Or you know, what was your what's your so playbook I bought, on I bought a couple getting a playbook, I guess. Bought a couple small deals myself, my own money, just to test it out and test the thesis and those, those all did really well, like fantastic. Realized like, hey, there is really money to be made here. Debt's available, kind of proof of concept. And this was, I mean, the first one was 14 months ago. So like Harbor Capital is still new. Uh, brought in a whole team of people who are in, infinitely smarter than me. You know, notice the thread, the theme here. Uh, people have got tons of experience with industrial and with, you know, real estate properties and investing. And so I have this incredible, we've got now six people on the team that really know what they're doing. And I enjoy being the dumbest person in the room. Um, and so that, that's that been great. That's really helped us grow. But you know, we basically just tested it out and then kept plotting along doing bigger deals, almost, almost without fail. Every time we've done a deal, it's bigger than the last one. Um, although we do have a new one right now, it's a little bit smaller than the last one. But <laughs> And would you say the most common strategy, I guess, specifically with the deals you're doing, is it making sure it's kind of the, the appropriate tenant that can pay market rent? Or are you going in and fundamentally changing, I don't know, the, the I guess, the height of the doors, maybe, or, or the loading yeah. docks? Or what are no, so we don't, levers we don't do, we look for buildings where we don't have to do much value add. I don't, we don't think of ourselves as like fix and flip industrial guys. I don't want to go in and change the nature of the property. Although sometimes we will, as a backup strategy, put together a plan to subdivide the property into a bunch of smaller units that we could rent out to tenants. Um, But again, that's not plan A if we don't have to. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we look for misleased properties in growing areas with low vacancies and not a lot of new supply coming online. Um, I mean, one really good thing about the market we're buying in is we're typically able to buy for substantially below replacement cost. And so we're buying a building right now that we're paying $10.7 million for. We had a contractor come in and give us a price of what it would cost to replace that building, and it was $17 million. So we're basically buying it for that far below. 
a brand new version of this building would rent for essentially the exact same price that we're able to rent this one for. And so there's that moat around that property there that, you know, first of all, there's, there's no inventory in the, in the market right now, very little that like could go vacant and all of a sudden make there be a bunch of inventory and not a chance that someone's going to build something right next door and be able to underlease us. That, and then we just go in with these hyper-conservative debt and equity structures. I mean, th- this deal that we're buying now, we could we could lower rents to 75% below market and still make debt service. So wow. we sleep yeah, that's well at night with those economics. You know? Yeah, that's phenomenal. I, uh, I like what you were saying before, kind of bringing it back to like, you have six people on your team right now, all really smart. And I, I remember you shared something before where essentially you say like, when you hire these really smart individuals, you made some mistakes before and kind of corrected it. Now where your point of management is almost, let me show you the outcome. Let's show you where we're trying to get to. I don't care how you do it. And I'm not going to try to tell you how to do it. Cause like I hired you to figure that out. Um, and I think yeah. that's a really smart way to go and think about it. One other like similar kind of like life lesson or, or, or thought philosophy that you've shared before that I'd love for you to elaborate on is basically like how the most powerful change you can make in life is learning to lengthen the space between stimulus and response. And I thought that was really like pretty profound. I'd love to kind of understand more how you think about that in the scope of real estate. Yeah. So that um, quote is from a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Frankl, Yeah. He was a, a, you know, he was in the Holocaust and was basically in a concentration camp for years and lost his whole family and, and, and just made some really profound, you know, realizations during that time, which gosh, I mean, I can't even imagine what he went through, how hard that would be. But, but, but it's, it's interesting. You think of that, like, I think early on in my career, I saw I was extremely reactionary. Something would happen and what first came to mind as how to respond was what I did. And then later realize, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. I better go do something else. And, and just learning to like recognize stimulus, deliberately pause, even if it's just for a minute, sometimes it's for four days before responding and, and recognizing like, hey, a response from us is not necessary at this point. Like we're in the middle of a big negotiation with a, on a deal right now. And, and the, the, person on the other side of the table basically just kind of keeps shooting stuff at us and we're just not responding. And I'm, it's so much fun to watch because they're imploding and, and, and it gets better for us every time. And we're just not like deliberately not saying anything. And so, I mean, I'll write back and be like, yeah, yeah we'll think about this and we'll get back to you. And like, and they're taking that as this like almost a front to them. And like, I'm fine. What if we did this? What if we did this? <laughs> you go ahead and do that. But I actually need some time to think and I'm going to take it because there's nothing happening here that's making it to where I have to respond this minute. In terms of, I think you've mentioned a couple other books before as well. Um, yeah. Do you have kind of like your your go-to three to four books that you typically recommend people, you know, whether it's business focused or kind of just life focused um, that you think people yeah. should read? Um, Ryan Holiday's stuff, the Stoicism books are just fantastic. Really, really good. I always get a lot of that out of those. Essentialism is one I've read, I think, four times now. Um, Essentialism by, I'm going to look it up because I want to, Greg McEwen, McEwen. Um, that book is fantastic. I mean, I, I, that was just really, really incredible. 
like it's the the disciplined pursuit of less like basically just cutting out of your life the things that don't matter walking away from from things that you kind of society tells you you need to do but you don't enjoy just focusing on you know how to how to like get done what actually is important and let let everything else go i i had been a big believer for years in the okr system which there's a book called measure what matters um by john doerr that's really good i recently because one of our advisors pushed really hard on this have switched over to the eos system which is the entrepreneurial operating system, which is a far more structured, uh, you know, it's, it comes from a book called Traction, far more structured, detailed, like system, uh, kind of business operating system structure that um, I, I've now learned to like a lot better where the, I, I mean, I, I still have a kind of something in my heart for the OKR system because it's 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 very open and you can just set your goals and go go towards them and it doesn't require a lot of kind of constant maintenance but really EOS makes sure you know nothing gets forgotten and so that one that one the traction book is just really good. You you had a really uh oh gotcha yeah yes yeah, well kind of I might be just flipping um a little bit back and forth but I kind of want to chat about you know people that are maybe our age with the goal of, Hey, I want to come in. Maybe, I don't know, say the end goal is to just have a, a huge real estate portfolio in 20 years from now, young, right. maybe some money. Um, you kind of yeah. talk about, you know, one of the, one of the best things you can do is just find a playbook and, you know, go through that playbook until, until you can't anymore. Um, yeah. Looking at it from, I guess, the perspective of, maybe a global standpoint or an asset class standpoint, if, if the only goal right. would be to kind of go in and, and just get as many real estate deals done as possible and really build up some sort of portfolio. Yeah. You know, are you telling someone that, Hey, maybe you should go check out some of these unknown areas, um, you know, that, that people haven't even ever considered investing in like Ethiopia or maybe, you know, some, some other areas of, of, of Europe or Africa. And like, is, <laughs> is that kind of the hustle of going all in on some of these places that, other people not necessarily. Going? I mean, not uh, those international markets work if you're willing to live there and spend an enormous amount of time getting to know those markets. I mean, I, I still, you know, there's a reason I kind of came back to the fundamentals of investing and, and decided to do something that was like not sexy, which is yes. industrial. Like, is because I, I wanted to build something that was bulletproof, and I wanted to go into a market that had you know staying power. And so, you know, I looked for something that was deliberately less sexy, deliberately like not getting attention. Um, I, that's it. I, you know, it's so cliche and I hate what this guy has done. Robert Kiyosaki that wrote the book has done later in his life, but Rich Dad Poor Dad was just a really good book. Like, yeah. and it was a fundamental, like, I mean, I think I was 19 when I read it and I still can quote things out of that book. And just that concept of like, like, buying something that is going to make you a little bit of money and kind of using that sweat, sweat equity to make it worth more. And then just repeat, do that again and again. And, and that was good. And another one that was really good early on was the uh, rich Spain in Babylon. That, I love that book. <laughs> I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest. The, the richest man on Babylon in Babylon. I listened to the audiobook on that and yeah, I don't know yeah. if they intentionally read, read it out loud sounding like old English, but I was oh, just like, going through, 
I was like going for walks in and I was like, I feel like I'm listening to like a Shakespearean <laughs> poem right now. Go go buy the real one. Yeah. It'll take you an afternoon to read it. It's very good fundamentals that totally, I mean, to this day, yeah. and I, it's been 22 years since I read that book. To this day, there are things that I still do that I completely learned then. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot yeah. of a lot of focus on the concept of compounding too, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, and, and just getting outside the cycle. I feel like a lot of people mm-hmm. that book kind of identifies that like some people are are kind of putting money to work for them, and other people are working for money, and how to get to be one of those people that's kind of thinking of it differently, and, and, and it truly works, and truly compounding is a, a powerful, powerful tool. I mean, I think, I think a lot of these books are always like kind of the, the cliche books that everyone reads that everyone always cites, but there's kind of a yeah. reason why everyone always mentions them. I think that and like yeah. the horrible work week was the first one where I really read it and I was like, oh, this is yeah. like an option. It's good stuff. Like, <laughs> this is a, something anyone can do. Um, yeah. You've, you've had wild scope of, of, of things you've done. Do you think, how do you view that kind of having a really diverse range of experiences now that you can they can kind of use in what you're doing now at harbor capital versus you know having the other side of that would have been hey i've been in industrial properties for 30 years and this is kind of the only thing i've done do you view kind of that super niche knowledge base versus you know i don't know how what what are some of the the kind of pros and cons you think of someone that might be too hyper focused versus to spread out on on what they're really trying to do. I mean, for me, I I I wish I'd gotten here sooner to understand the potency and value of this market. Um, I hired around my own deficiencies and brought really good brokers and a good network of lenders and like a whole team around me that, that does deals together. Who you know, I mean, there's decades and decades of experience there between everybody. And so there's a lot that I can lean on. I, I mean, I, yeah, I wish I'd, I'd earlier been able to say like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to pick and choose and buckle down here. It would have paid off dividends, uh, you know, <laughs> enormous dividends. And had I, had I been focused and I wish I'd, I wish I'd started 10 years earlier doing industrial in Texas because my goodness, what a market. <laughs> I do think this actually might transition next well into my next question too which is like and this is probably at least where i'll probably wrap up is you've got a lot of really good quotes here and, and the one that i pulled here was like know what season you're in um and i think for you right now it's quite apparent you're buying industrial faci- facilities in texas what do you right. mean by like know the season i think like, let's say that you're explaining it to like your son in ut or something like that yeah yeah i mean that's one of those things that I, you know you can use a hundred different management tools and you know i've read everything from jack welch to you know the traction of the os and okrs and all of them and i feel like all of those have have a really like a focus on all the things that need to be done but i've always like uh, recognized that, that that above that is this almost like thesis or paragraph of what season are we in and so, like for Harbor Capital right now, it's this scale up. We've already proven the model works. We've already gotten, a, you know, we have over 1,100 now accredited investors on our list who look at deals and we've got the model figured out. And now it's like continue to apply that model and scale up. That's the season we're in. It's, it's building out systems and processes 
continuing to add a couple more people to the team to be able to like take on this kind of growth that we see that's available to us in this market right now. Um, that's, that's the season, you know, and, and in a year, the season might be like, Hey, we, you know, we expanded really quickly. We need to dial it back for a bit and kind of swallow what we've bought or, Hey, maybe we want to bring, you know, property management in house. So we're going to need to build up systems for that. Like it's kind of knowing, knowing the season of life and knowing the season of business and what's, what's kind of most important of what's going on. It's like the Steve Jobs thing of like, make a list of the 10 most important things that are going on and then cross out seven and just focus on three. I think I'm getting the numbers wrong, but he might even said just cross us every cross out everything but one, but true. I mean, you really need to know what's going on right now and where to focus your energy and then, then apply dogged focus to, towards it. I feel like so many people wake up and they start working, but they don't know exactly what they're working on. Yeah, I think I think it's much easier said than than done when there's just so much, I guess, either opportunity or, or things to look at, right? Like, what are you, what are you, what are you focusing on? And then trying to actually focus on that one thing is a. Um, I think home. one of the biggest mistakes people make, even especially in that kind of twenties to thirties season of life, is you'll spend years kind of looking for the thing that you should be focusing on and kind of bouncing around. Maybe we'll do this. Oh, I don't know. That's not for me. But like in reality, you could just take a weekend, like leave your phone and, and computer and go like connect with somebody who's you're going to work with, uh, you know, or even just bring somebody as like a sparring partner for the conversation and, and don't leave until you figured it out, like figure out what you're going to do and then go do it. Do you know what I'm saying? But don't, don't wake up every day with this. I'm just making progress, but I don't know what, what towards stop until you know what towards and then go towards it. I love it. I feel like that's very kind of, kind of perfect advice. Cause I think, I think that hits home to a lot of people that are probably, um, probably listening to this. I, um, yeah. I feel like I could probably keep going on for hours here. I got, I got so many <laughs> questions left. Um, no, it's interesting. I keep to go a little bit further on that one. It's that stop is the point. I think so many people don't stop. They just, they feel like you got to keep going. And so you make, it's the illusion of progress, right? Like I made 17 phone calls today, but like, what, what were you trying to really do? What were you trying to get done? But if you can literally just stop all of life so that you can then focus and don't restart until you know what the focus is and decide the path, then you're productive. It's that Seneca quote, like, uh, if one doesn't know when, which, to which port you're sailing, no winds are favorable. <laughs> I love that. I like that one. Yeah, that's, that's, that's super well said. And I think, I think the biggest issue too comes from like, you'll have a ton of parental pressure when you're young and in your twenties of like wanting to go and achieve something and show it off to your friends. And especially with like just showing off on like social media, whatever it is now, like, I don't know people, I think it's very easy to get into the trap of the hustle culture and being busy yeah. for being busy yeah. and it gets over glamorized when in reality, like, I mean, like, frankly, you're in the deal business. Right. And so, you know, that you need a lot of effort to go put into uh, finding those deals and getting good opportunities. But the fact of the matter is like all like probably 90% of the results that you've gotten, I would imagine are coming from like a few small interactions that just really paid off. Um, I would right. think at least. And so like, it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting to break the, tie between effort and result yeah 
either, either way, Levi, this has been a fantastic episode, man. I'm, I'm really excited to yep. publish this one. Um, if people want to go and follow more of what you're working on and what you're building, where can they go and check you out? Harborcap.com is our website. I uh, say a bunch of shit on Twitter that's worthless. And every once in a while, there's some, some, some gold in there. Um, I, at Levi James here is my handle on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you, Levi. Yeah, this is fun. If you thought today's episode was awesome, we would love it if you would leave a five-star review on the podcast, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference and lets us get cooler and cooler guests for future episodes. 